Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, a great place to get cool, creative, and above all, comfortable socks. Go to getbombas.com slash weekend to get 20% off your first order. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we have a very special, long weekend. It is Thanksgiving weekend here in the United States, and I think we both have a lot of exciting, which is to say maybe not even slightly exciting, and that in itself is exciting to have not exciting time, plans to play a lot of games and to dig into awesome things and hopefully eat some food. So Rob, what have you been like into lately, and what are you planning on doing this weekend? Uh, so I don't know if we talked about it much on the last show, but I finally got uh, my gaming PC. Yes. Uh, so, like, actually, like the day after the election, I want to say um, the the salve in the wound was the <laughs> fact that um, a giant Falcon Northwest gaming PC showed up. <laughs> um, yeah, and. It's 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 pretty fantastic, and so it's sort of been me getting reacquainted with with PC gaming, and uh, you know I, the main thing I've been I've been playing in the past week is uh, is still Dishonored. Uh, I think nice. Dishonored Two is 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 really really good, and has has become kind of an obsession uh, of mine because I think it's just one of those it's one of those fictional worlds I just I click with uh, on such an intense level. It's like a checklist of of things I really really love um the thing i would say about it though is that there's 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 two things i think in some ways the the environments are are livelier feeling and there's there's more to explore and more to do at the same time i sometimes feel like it's hard to identify it's harder to identify the pieces of the machine uh as it were like yeah yeah dishonored had levels where it was sort of easy to start to discern the levers you could pull to make other things happen. Uh, like there's a mission where um, like the high overseer is trying to assassinate like the captain of the guard and there's sort of a classic like uh, poisoned j- chalice problem. Uh, and there's a number of ways you can you can go about solving it, but only a few that don't end up uh, in incomplete chaos. And that was a level where it was really easy to sort of, sort of like start wrapping your head around the core problems. And then you could start identifying the other paths you could take to make it resolve differently. In Dishonored 2, sometimes I feel like there's so much going on in these levels that it's a little harder to discern um, their inner workings, right? Because they're, they're simply, I th- they feel like more complicated devices than in the first game. And yeah. And that can be a really good thing, but at the same time, like, I think it's sort of a, a problem you see with a lot of, well, a lot of games in general, right? Like, you're allowed to have more complexity, you're allowed to have more things happening, which is cool. At the same time, it makes it a little harder for a player to sort of uh, hold the problem in their heads at all times. Sure, sure. That makes sense. I have just only dipped my toe into Dishonored 2. I'm I'm only like an hour and a half in or something. I sort of just... Just got through the, the, you know, sort of very, very beginning area. And I'm playing as Emily, which is fun. And, you know, sort of the way I play big games a lot of the times, and not even just big games, but games that are about the atmosphere and about the world, 
I take my sweet ass time. Like I look at every little thing. I, you know, in, in sort of Emily's safe room, she drew a picture of the golden cat. Yes. And, like as a cat, which I thought was hilarious and adorable and weird and actually struck on a whole bunch of like funny things about like the things you think the world are like when you're a child and that has nothing to do with the with the actual you know topic at hand but that's what you thought it was the golden cat which is um it's a brothel stage in the first game it's one of the it's one of the stages where you have an assassination and you have to do something with these two brothers who own the brothel and it's it's one of those classic dishonored like killing them is a lot nicer than what you you know what the non-lethal option is and it's it's one of the reasons that that game stuck so much in my mind uh even though it had sort of a morality system it always seemed like the, the thing that was the darker thing was actually much kinder uh so yes that was that's sort of the setup to that and and so there's so many nice little callbacks and there's so many things about the world that seem consistent and they seem interesting uh that are sort of continued over from the the previous game as well so yeah i mean it's it's awesome to be in that world again it is rad to be there again it is and it's such a it's such a resonant world uh, in some ways, like the fact that one of the interesting things in that world is that the entire thing is run on oil. Uh, so there is kind of a there is an industry built on, uh, on on like fuels, but they're not fossil fuels, right? They're 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 whale oil. Um, and so in the second game, there's references to the fact that like they are depleting the ocean of whales. Yeah. Uh, and so the society that sort of had an industrial revolution on the back of uh, this widely available, uh, cheap uh, energy resource is starting to confront the fact that, like, it's a finite resource and what comes after that. Uh, so it's cool when you go, go down to uh, Karnaka, which is sort of where most of the game takes place, that they're starting to experiment with renewables, right? Yeah. That, like, they're trying to figure out, like, okay, well, what do we have? What's a resource that we have? Uh, we have? We have ocean breezes. That's what we've got. Uh, and so they're starting to invest in that, and they're sort of laying the groundwork for like being uh, sort of the last industrial hub standing because everyone else is going to run out of oil, and they're not. Uh, it, it, it's cool seeing them tackle that. It's cool like that Karnak is sort of presented as a place where like the social safety net's been gutted uh, by by a bad ruler, and that's sort of why everything is sort of going to hell. You know, it's it's because like ba like basic services have crumbled. And so, like, you've got infestations running out of control. There's no more pest control. Uh, there's, you know, and, and that's leading to, um, you know, like, reduced opportunities starting to, like, cause gangs to start to, like, you know, riot in the street against, uh, against the guards. And there's places where you'll come and you'll come across, like, a huge street fight. Uh, it, it just feels like a really fun and exciting world. And that's just the world, like between the main like set piece levels the levels themselves where you go do the missions uh are also really really cool yeah uh, each one has a really like distinctive character and i think the one that i'm utterly in love with and i talked about this in my uh in my review at glixel was um the clockwork mansion level yeah Is, yeah it's the, i've heard a lot yeah about yeah that. it's this place that's run by um this like crazed, not crazed, he, no, a sadistic genius inventor uh, is the go. way to put it. Is it Solikov's? Uh, he's a, he's holding uh, Sokolov hostage. Oh, okay. uh, so remember, you do actually you do actually kidnap Sokolov in the first game, I think. Uh, yeah, you totally and, do. Yeah, but he turns out to be a good guy. Um, but then here in the second game, 
Sokolov's sort of been overtaken uh, by this this younger shithead uh, who builds automata. And naturally, he's built, like, evil automata that are, like, killer robot guards. But his mansion is... Yeah, there's so many things that are cool about it. For one thing, like, the rest of the world is very, like, neo-Gothic, Victorian-looking. It's like, it's got steampunk touches, but, like, it has a clear architectural style. Uh, And then Jindosh's place is the inventor. He's, like, very avant-garde. And so his place is full of, like, Art Nouveau and, like, even, like, early Art Deco, like, touches. Like, this is a guy who, like, is a revolutionary and his aesthetic tastes also run to the, for this world... The revolutionary, the iconoclastic. Uh, but that also really dovetails with the fact that his mansion, uh, and the reason it's called the Clockwork Mansion, is entirely modular and transformable. The entire level is like being inside a giant transformer. So you'll push a button and like an entire room will change and reassemble itself around you. And it's not like, it's not just magic. Like the level fits together. Like everything makes sense. Like if a, if a flight of stairs appears, they appeared from somewhere, and you might be able to find, like, where they were stored um, before you hit that switch, right? Like, you can get into the inner workings of the level and come across, like, rooms turned on their side for storage and shit. Uh, it's really, really cool, and it's just, like, stuff that you didn't see in the first game, but is is kind of, like, just a sign of how much more ambitious and, uh, like, thematically interesting these levels have gotten in the second game. Oh, I can't. I can't wait for that. Like I said, I'm only just in the sort of. I'm on the ship right after the kind of first area, like the the very beginning. I guess I I've, I've just finished the first mission and I'm I'm hanging out on the ship and now I'm looking for bone charms and all this other stuff, sort of in the ocean and yeah, I've taken my sweet time. But I'm oh, this is definitely the the sort of game where I knew I was gonna like it and I really like it and I'm kind of taking my time with it and doing the thing I could never do when I like was reviewing a lot of these games. So it's, oh, it's delicious. <laughs> it's a delicious experience right now. What else are you into right now? Oh my God. Well, uh, I just started playing a whole bunch of little things too, um, which, you know, I'm probably going to name one of them as an endorsement, but a bundle went up yesterday. It's called the Good Bundle. And it is a whole bunch, it's like 151 little games. A lot of them are tiny, tiny. Uh, but there's things like Gone Home and The Novelist and, uh, you know, Lost Constellation, which is Night in the Woods, sort of little uh, prequel and, and things like that. So there's, there's just so much good little tiny things that I've been snacking on. And one of the games that I t- I've played a bit of is called Cat Lateral Damage, uh, which is a... Maybe you've heard of it, but it's it's a first-person platformer where you play as a cat, a very cute little cat, uh, who has to basically run around a house and wreck shit. Like, just throw things all over the place. You have, like, a little paw swipe move, and otherwise you're running and jumping. And, you know, it, it, it's, like, a cute little thing that... It's almost like an I am bread kind of thing where you think, like, oh, this is, this is a cute little thing. I'll play it for five minutes. And then there's actually, like hidden challenges and things you can do to modify the environment. Like you can, you can trigger things like moon gravity and you can have like weird combos with all the stuff you're throwing around. So it's, it's actually like kind of great. (laughs) There's like a little bit of a hidden depth to it on top of it just being like a really fun, wacky little premise. Uh, And there's, there's another one I was playing called earth tongue, which is a sort of a terrarium simulator on an alien planet. And instead of it being, um, sort of 
super wild life forms. You, you have insects and you have fungi and you're objective is to make a weird little world that where all the little critters you know eat each other or use each other to you know to sustain themselves in some way uh and and you're playing as this sort of godlike scientist uh who, who just chooses a planet and you read all these little diary entries about like hmm i'm using my powers and i'm experimenting and now i'm seeing these weird bugs and and this weird fungus and this bizarre stuff happening in the ecosystem and it's the kind of thing where it was made by like one one person and it's you know cute pixel art and nice little music and things like that. I'm I'm just really enjoying the like tasting aspect of this bundle uh and and playing a lot of stuff from it. And I and I will definitely uh, talk about one of these games in my endorsement this week too, which kind of, I think is free and I think everybody should play it for 5 minutes cuz it's just it's just worth your time. But yeah, the the good bundle has a lot of good stuff in it. And <laughs> <laughs> that's not all. I'm also uh, definitely like still into Mafia Three. I'm still chugging along with Mafia Three. I'm still loving it. Uh, okay, it's, I kind of fell off it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't blame you. Like it's it, it, it's easy to do so, and a million things just came out, and there's too much stuff in that game as opposed to like just the the condensed amazing nugget of good stuff that's there. Uh, but I'm I'm still enjoying it. I'm still having fun. I mean, I, you know, I feel like I, I already kind of gave my thoughts on this game and I and I stand by them. And uh, f- I am also, Rob, playing the NES Classic. <laughs> okay. Uh, which, you know, I've talked about various games on it uh, previously, but I, I don't know. I've gotten really into Kirby's Adventure, uh, which is great and pretty and awesome. And, and, and it's... Ugh, it's not the only great game on that system. I, I also got really into Star Tropics, which is not a game I ever played or thought about or knew much about until, you know, it was kind of on this this little system with with thirty different options to go with. Um and and yeah, but here's the thing I really want to tell you about Rob. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing I'm really obsessed with right now, and that is definitely Pokemon Sun and Moon. <laughs> I am obsessively playing pokemon moon like it's what i do for two hours before bed at like in bed before bed around bed like just around bed is the place of pokemon right now and or or like while watching movies with friends we definitely had like a a session the other night where we watched the wachowski speed racer movie and played all played pokemon like everybody was playing pokemon while watching this ridiculous movie and it was just it was like a healing experience. It was grand and beautiful. Now, and are is, you always a Pokemon person? Like, is this like is this something you return to again and again, or are you not usually a Pokemon fanatic? I am an a like. <laughs> so here's my history with Pokemon. I never played any of them in my life until two years ago, like at all whatsoever. I think I just I just missed it. You know, I think we're the same age, so it was like. I feel like it was like 1998 when it was like every kid was playing Pokemon. And by that time I was in high school. So it was it was sort of like a thing that I just sort of missed culturally. And then two years ago, my girlfriend got uh, Alpha Sapphire and whatever, Omega Ruby. And she gave one of them to me. It was like, help me review this game. You never played a Pokemon before. You should try one. And I played like 120 or 130 hours of it. Like I became so ridiculously obsessed with this game catching every pokemon getting every legendary 
you know, leveling up my Pokemon to level 100, just ridiculous. Like it was, it was a thing I brought everywhere with me. I would like work out with it. I would bring it to wherever I was going. It was, it was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why did it? I'm why like did it a click born so again <laughs> Pokemon fan, basically. Why did it click so hard? Like, as somebody who's always been the outside of this church, um, yeah. what, <laughs> like, what's 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 the hook for you? So it's it's just like a really good light RPG with like no grinding. So that's already like a pretty fun framework if the combat is fun, and it and it is. It's it's you know, uh, it's sort of like a light rock paper scissors kind of thing going on, but with with all kinds of different fun elements. That and the fact that it is obscenely, obscenely cute. Like, it's just really cute and and imaginative. Like, all the Pokemon designs are, I I think, kind of wonderful. Like, okay, yeah, maybe there's a few in there that totally suck. I've seen some really lame ones. Like, there's one that looks like a key ring. No, that one's my favorite. You're talking about Clefki. Rob, I can't believe you just insulted Klefki on this. It podcast. looks like one of those baby chew toys. It like, does, with the and keys it's cute. And... Oh, I can't, I can't believe it. You really, actually think the lamest Pokemon is my favorite Pokemon? I am. Well, I think, I think the really damning thing is you think the lamest Pokemon <laughs> is the best Pokemon. <laughs> Uh, I mean, and also, I find like, it like honestly, part of, of it's just, it, it's it's a horror. It's like it's it's a horrifying construct. Like. It's like a starfish taken out of its natural environment. Like, how does it live? Yeah. How does it do anything? It's just it, like, how does it? How does it move? I don't think it can. It's a key ring. It floats because it's a ghost. It's a ghost type Pokemon. So okay. it floats around with its little keys jingling and jangling. I mean, if you if you we get, if we want to get real, there's some like really stupid Pokemon. Like, I don't like a lot of the fighting types because they look too human. Like they're yeah. they're like too well too close there, and it's like I. You're my magical weird pet that I make fight other people. And now it's basically dog faint. fighting. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it is. And then there's a lot of weird stuff. And this one, in this particular game, uh, is even more lovey-dovey than the older games. Like, the older games were apparently a little bit more like, yeah, you know, they're your little friends or whatever. But this one, when you choose your starter, and, and I'm sure you've seen on the internet uh, the things about the starters, they have to choose you. And of course, they always do. Like in the beginning of the game, you're not going to give a child this game, and it gets rejected, rejected by, by all the Pokemon. Animal. Like that was sorry, that Pikachu was, just didn't like you. Poplio hated your fucking face. That's that's what happened. Maybe you should work Little on what, whatever energy you're projecting. Like the Pokemon <laughs> did not like it. Maybe you should buy a. Maybe you should buy a different one. Yeah, exactly. Um... But but yeah, th- there's this little sequence now, and they're all really cute. I mean, whatever. I like Poplio. I picked Poplio. It looks like my puppy. He we call him Pooplio. It's a real name that we call him. But anyway, uh, who's like a little seal puppy, and there's a little fire kitten, and then there's a little owl who has like leaf powers. And no matter which one you choose, your little character uh, lifts them up like a little baby and like kind of looks at them like a little baby. And the text is, it, it says something like, you, ho- you hold Poplio gently in your arms. And there's this whole like caring aspect of this one. You have to like pet them to make them, uh, to raise their affection stat. That was in the older games, but it's actually a little bit more present here because now you can actually sort of like heal status uh, effects and things like that by petting them and, and sort of grooming oh them and God. taking care of them. Oh, yeah. So this is... This is like catnip for you. Oh, yeah, it really fucking is. It's like nurture cute things, also fight things. Like, those are things I enjoy. 
<laughs> equally and in abundance. Uh, so it, it's it's here in this one little game. And of course, there's also the aspect where it's like, the fact that it's mobile is is wonderful and great. Like, it's actually, like, a perfect game to play on a train or, you know, wherever because there's no Twitch movements. There's no... You, you could actually play this on a bus or while doing whatever else. You can play this one-handed while petting your real-life pets, as I've been doing now. I could never do that before with a Pokemon game. Uh, so it's just, it's just, like, conducive to being played in basically any atmosphere, and that helps a lot, too. You know, if you're a busy person... Uh, or somebody who has friends who are like-minded and they want to play Pokemon too, you can hang out and play Pokemon. What a what a concept. Um, yeah, so that I mean that's that's basically it. it. It's it's also a good game. Like it's a fun, light JRPG as well as all of those other things. Like I don't care for the stories ever, but I do like to sort of search in all the little nooks and crannies of the world and find all the little bits and pieces there's always little secrets kind of hidden and they're not it's not like there's a great story payoff but it's it's fun to be able to do that i guess uh as somebody who just enjoys doing that in any game um so yeah pokemon is oh god it's so goddamn good i also played like a million hours of x like pokemon x and y uh immediately after alpha sapphire so i've i've for somebody who's only played you know this is my third pokemon game and i've played a few hundred hours of these games i feel like i'm i'm you know I'm a, I'm still a relatively new convert, but I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty down down with the sickness, <laughs> I guess. Uh, the last thing I'll say about it is that this particular game uh, is sort of wonderful uh, because it's set in a sort of very Hawaiian vacation paradise. So it's it's doing this whole thing where you know the the other games are set uh, primarily in different regions of Japan, and X and Y was set in France, like a, a fanciful you know sort of. Japanese version of France, of course, cartoonish Japanese version of France. And now this one is like, it's set in Alola, the Alola Islands, which is, it's basically Hawaii. And everybody runs around in board shorts with cute hair and, and everybody's chill and everybody, you know, everybody's very relaxed. Everybody sort of lives in a vacation town. So there's, that part of it kind of helps too. That's, that's nice. It's nice to be in that little world with your cute little friends that you can groom, even if they are weird key rings that look like baby chew toys. So Pokemon's great. So um <clears throat> my my gaming of late has been has been very well, I mean true like as is typical for me, uh, very militarized. Um mm. so I I just got uh early access code for a follow-up to one of my favorite war games the last couple of years. Uh like I think there the, I think in the last like five years or so, uh there have been two legitimately great um like war games that came out that are that are good for anyone like would recommend to any sort of uh player even people who aren't like that into war games uh the first was unity of command which i, I think was just a brilliant war game uh really challenging really simple uh massively replayable uh the other one that came out that was that was another sort of work of work of uh, minor genius in some ways was uh ultimate general uh gettysburg which was made by uh the guy who used to be like a realism modder for the Total War series. Um, I forget the guy's. I, I forget the guy's name. Uh, he, he's, he's a. I've talked to him. He's he's a pretty nice guy uh, from Greece, but he he went by Darth Mod. Um, okay. And good. Uh, he, sorry, no, he went by Darth Vader online, uh, and okay. all his mods were the Darth Mods. And eventually, he sort of tried his hand at making a game of his own. 
and the the result was Ultimate General Gettysburg, uh, which is a lot like um, Sid Meier's Gettysburg, which is a a great war game and and actually uh, sort of changed the way people modeled Civil War combat on like a tactical level. Like hmm. it, it like that th- that game casts a shadow uh, over nineteenth century warfare and how people think about it and simulate it. And Ultimate General Gettysburg kind of simplifies that formula, but follows in its footsteps. Um, the main innovation is that Ultimate General kind of stripped away a lot of cruft. Like, a lot of 19th century war games will give you controls over, like, formations your troops can be in. But the thing about formations is they aren't actually, like, super interesting decisions because they're very situational. Like... Troops, basically, troops march in columns, and they fight in lines. And that's the rule, right? And so if you're ever fighting in column formation, you've screwed up, and you need to get in a line formation. So, like, to some people, having that button is really important. Um, Ultimate General kind of is like, eh, let's just automate all the type of decisions that, like, commanders on the field would, wouldn't worry about, right? Like, that stuff will just happen. Um, so... Ultimate General Gettysburg is a great Gettysburg game. Highly recommend it. Uh, it's not very expensive. You can pick it up now. It's great. And I had such misgivings about Ultimate General Civil War. I'm not sure it's called okay. Ultimate General Civil War. I was, I was really worried because when you go from Ultimate General, single game, to a game covering the entire Civil War, it starts to feel like biting off more than one can chew, right? And I saw the yeah. battle list and I was like, holy, like, oh, God. This is the whole war. It's a lot of battles. This is all of it. <laughs> like there's, and the issue there is like, it's it's actually not that the battles well feel samey. It's that every civil war battle, and this is why people get obsessed with it. Um, every civil war battle, like all the major ones, have a really distinctive character, and that's why they're fun to sort of play around with and think about because like they all have like there are things that like as an, like as Americans are even like casually aware of civil war history certain like things like loom in your mind, right? Like you hear Antietam and you probably get a picture of like bodies in the sunken road. Cause that's sort of the, the vision of America's like bloodiest battle, bloodiest single day. Um, you know, Fredericksburg is the long, the long rise up to the stone wall held by the Confederates. And so every game, like a lot of civil war, a lot of civil war battles are actually like comprised of, of several smaller battles, but they're really distinctive geography and, and really like deserve to have several scenarios about them. I thought this was going to be sort of a buckshot, like, you know, here's a lot of battles, a really shallow treatment of all of them, and it was going to suck. No, it's actually, ba- it, the way it appears, the direction it appears to be going is like 50 Ultimate General Gettysburgs in one game. Wow. Um, and even in Alpha, it works pretty well. Like, the AI isn't there. But, like, I was playing first Manassas, uh, first Bull Run, and it felt like a fully featured war game with tons of different stages and lots of smaller fights adding up to adding up to a much larger fight. Um, and it's just, it's, it's really, really cool. Uh, and, and it looks like there's going to be a campaign mode where... Uh, like some of your officers and units will will carry over, and those that distinguish themselves will improve. And so it's one of those things where it's like you're going to. It looks like you'll sort of be putting together your Civil War dream team over the course of the campaign and, and carrying that with you. But I was I, I have I have never one eighty so hard 
on an idea. Like, installing it, I was like, this is the one where, like, the sophomore effort, they get too ambitious, and the entire thing goes straight to hell. I'm really concerned about this. I play one scenario, and I'm like, by Jove, they've done it. <laughs> like, I mean, like, you know, champagne popping, like, because uh, this is going to be, like, games like this have become pretty few and far between. Uh, yeah. A lot of wargaming has become um, fairly staid, fairly uh, enthusiast-focused at the expense of accessibility. And this one feels like, this feels a lot like the types of, of games that really got me into the hobby. Uh, so I am super, I'm super excited for this. Uh, there's so many battles that, that haven't gotten their due. Uh, one of the things that this game showcases early is uh, Shiloh, uh, which is a weirdly overlooked battle from a war game perspective. So, yeah, it's it's just been really cool. It looks like it's going to be one of those um, insane values, uh, insane like war chest type values uh, for for anyone who's who's into this kind of game. Uh, I don't recommend it like right away, right? Like it's still very much a work in progress. There's still room for this to all go wrong. If you if you want to get a taste of like where this is headed, um, play Ultimate General Civil War, uh, Ultimate General Gettysburg. Sure, that one's done. It's awesome. Uh, it's it's great. Would um, I be able to put that on and get into, you know, sit into an armchair general seat, uh, which is not a seat that I sit in often, and get something out of it, do you think? For sure. For okay. sure. Okay. Uh, because, because, like, the thing is, there are nuances to it, but you don't need to pick up on them right away. Like, the really cool thing is... You start basically just by clicking and drawing arrows on the map from where a unit is to where you want it to go. Uh, and if you want a unit to like execute a flank march, you just put a little loop into the line, and they will follow that loop. And so they will spin into a flanking position and stuff like that, which is which is really the name of the game. Um, but yeah, it's it's all pretty basic stuff. Like you have to pay attention to um, the way the way it strips it down is pretty simple. Um, Every unit has morale, and morale is like you'd expect, you know, is the unit going to continue standing and fighting, or is it going to run? Morale gets low enough, they run. The thing about morale is it's a resource bar that is very quickly consumed, and very quickly, like, comes back. Like, units break and run all the time uh, in the Civil War, and then they rally and are able to resume fighting not too much later. Like, units constantly, like, fall back and cycle in and out of the line. Uh, so morale is very squishy. Uh, the other thing is condition. And that's more like um, how rested and battle-ready battle a force is. Mm -hmm. And condition uh, is, is kind of the critical value uh, because it replenishes very slowly. Like if condition hits zero, a unit needs to be out of battle for like 20 to 30 minutes. Um, and oh, wow. in game terms, that's like basically the rest of the scenario. They're probably going to be sitting doing nothing, maybe you'll get one more push out of them. But okay. so once condition is used up and they use up condition by marching over difficult terrain, by fighting, uh, basically like, you know, condition is the flesh, you know, morale is the spirit. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> the, the, the only other thing you have to watch for is, um, is cover, uh, which is how exposed are they? Uh, so if you're in like a, a rocky forest and holding that, uh, you're in like 90% cover and your troops will not take a lot of uh, casualties when incoming fire comes in. Uh, morale will be conserved because they feel safe and uh, moving through that will be tough on condition. But once they're holding it, uh, it's not that difficult to fight from positions like that. 
Uh, whereas if you're sort of advancing across an open field against an enemy who's got like an elevated position and cover, uh, your cover value will be very low and casualties will be very high and uh, morale will melt. And so those are the things you kind of watch for. Um, and, and it's, and that's it. That's like, <laughs> those are the three, those are the three things you watch for. Um, and the entire game just builds systems around that and the interaction between those values and terrain. But yeah, it's, it's, okay, it's, it's awesome. really that easy. <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm a little bit sold because I've always, you know, I've, I've dipped, <coughs> I've dipped toes into, to aspects of, of this world. Not, not mm. sort of pure war gaming, but, but. I I, wa- I just want to get it. I just want to understand it. I just want to you know see the appeal. I want to I, I want to be able to to understand that world and and at least on some level, right? Like yeah. I, I yeah, I'm just curious. I think Gettysburg is because not only that, the games just look really pretty. They're gorgeous. Yeah. They look like um, That's a good thing. They look those the, like those dioramas. Like you know how in the bu- mm. the Bunker Hill monument, there's that uh, glass case diorama. Yeah. In the totally. uh, in the ground floor, yeah, it's like one of those come to life. Um, okay, it's it's true. gorgeous. So, yeah, highly recommended. All um, I, I don't know, just you 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 might find it find it gifted to you uh, before oh this holiday weekend is over because I'm just like, <laughs> no, you must play this. I insist. Just play it. Um, <laughs> a Thanksgiving gift. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing I've been playing a little bit of um is Battlefield One. Oh. Uh, I haven't had time to get into the multiplayer yet, but I've been playing the single player. Uh, first, I just wanted something that would, I just wanted something that would sort of show off the new computer, but also like the surround sound. Battlefield 1, like, boy, does it ever. <laughs> uh, that is like, it is, it is a gorgeous and extremely loud game. Uh, <laughs> it, it's another thing that's probably going to make my neighbors hate me. Because uh, it just sounds, uh, the, the opening sequence is pretty cool. Um, people have talked about another podcast where like you are, you are basically jumping from body to body in this battle as soldiers get killed. Um, and you go to a new position and you're a new soldier. Um, and just all hell is breaking loose around you and it's terrifying and the sound effects are like nuts. Uh, so that, that's a pretty cool mission. Uh, but I'm also just impressed at how, how much more there is going on in this campaign that I'm used to from a battlefield game like the first uh the first set of missions is kind of a um like the movie fury but set in like 1917 1918 wow yeah yeah so it's like it's basically like this group of like burnouts driving this shitty tank through this like suicidal assault and they get they, they outrun their forces they get caught behind enemy lines and the tank breaks down and so it just turns into this, um, it, it turns into, it, it starts out really nightmarish, and then it turns into um, kind of a gorgeous uh, stealth adventure um, that's very, like, you're wandering through, uh, like, French and Belgian countryside uh, behind German lines, and you have to find replacement parts for your tank. And I'm currently stuck on a mission uh, where I've got to infiltrate this uh this village and the place is occupied by germans they don't know you're there and it's not like if you alert them you don't fail the mission it just becomes like hellaciously hard uh because you're one guy and this is the interesting thing too um i feel like in every other like 
modern warfare type game. Even World War II games. Uh, it's very easy to go into the one-man army mode because there's tons of automatic weapons. The AI isn't that good. So you can just, like, you know, find the AK-47 or equivalent and just, like, mow tons of dudes down. Not a huge problem. Here, those weapons are really few and far between. Uh, and a lot of your automatic weapons are either really crappy submachine guns that, like, do zero damage uh, or they are really heavy, like, bipod-mounted um like machine guns that are a pain in the ass to move around. You can't really run and gun uh, in this game with like an automatic weapon. So when you find yourself in the shit, like it's actually really terrifying to be sitting there like slapping reload and watching your guy like feed feed round into a rifle. And you're like, could you please just slam a clip in? But there is no clip. There's just loose shells. It's just like loading it. Uh, so when you like alert the Germans, you know, you can kill a couple of them, but they keep coming. And in the meantime, like every time you miss a shot, it's like, oh God, I'm going to be vulnerable for like two or three seconds while I get the next round ready. Um, and then you're starting to panic. Um, but I'm also just really impressed that like, it's not a great, if this were a stealth game, it wouldn't be a great one, but I am impressed. Like they did a pretty good job at introducing like stealth concepts and mechanics into this game. Like, Enemies have alert meters. Um, they investigate things, and actually, they they investigate things a lot more aggressively than I'm used to seeing in a uh, huh. in a stealth game. Like usually, guards go to like alert states and then really quickly like lapse back to their routine. These guys will keep looking. Like if they're sure they saw something, they explore for a pretty large radius around wherever they they thought they heard or spotted something. Um, so like you're, you're in this, this village and it's, it's utterly gorgeous. It's, there's moonlight, uh, like sort of street streaming through the village. So it's like all long shadows and, and deep blues. Uh, but you're, you're constantly hearing like, you know, just German guys shooting the shit with each other and on the other side of a wall. And you're like terrified because like one of them sounds like it's wrapping up and is that guy going to come into the street and see you and then it's all going to go to shit. Um, it's really, really cool. Oh my god! I so I'm almost annoyed uh, because now that's another fucking game I have to play. Because <laughs> the gaming is I'm so good, like, isn't it? Sold on you know I need to finish Dishonored. I love Dishonored. I I have been told I actually really need to play Infinite Warfare. Apparently, there's some actually really cool stuff going on in Infinite Warfare. I've got Titanfall two sitting on my shelf, yep, and Titanfall somebody said like there. it's like Portal yeah. with guns, and I'm like that sounds enticing. Yeah, there's, oh, God, and we, we we just, like, ran a story, too, about, like, this ridiculous time travel level that's in there. There's all this weird, awesome sci-fi stuff, and, like, it's all explored, like, in a really cool mechanical way, and I'm just sitting here, like, God damn it! <laughs> all these games are so fucking good this year! It seems like, it seems like, you know, a lot of the big games, um... That I wasn't even all that interested in. No. Like, you know, Infinite Warfare, no. I wasn't interested in it really until somebody was like, actually, it's pretty cool. And they're really sort of twisting some stuff and doing cool stuff with characters and so on and so forth. And this you know, is... you're telling me this about Battlefield and I'm kind of like, fuck. So here's what really scares <laughs> me about yeah. 2016. Um, yeah. Well, okay, this is, here's, here's the trivial well... <laughs> thing that really scares me about 2016. Yeah. It feels like the year that a lot of like, major game publishers and developers kind of like decided collectively to stop rehashing the same shit and strike out in a bunch of interesting directions and make some make stuff that's like unique and different uh and uh like thoughtful and exciting and fresh 
unfortunately, it's also the year that coincides with people collectively deciding they're kind of bored with games like this. Oh, I know. Like it, I like, know. And, and maybe, like, I, I really hope that the holiday sales like break this trend we're seeing. Like, but, but apparently, like, it doesn't sound like anything's selling super well. Not even, not even Call of Duty. Um, so, like, I find it really scary because I'm really worried that this is like you're gonna have this really unfortunate confluence where audience burnout hit just as the solution to that burnout was starting to take shape and starting to arrive. Yes. And the lesson is going to be, well, we tried different things that, that year. Better not do that again. And let's cut franchises. Oh, God. Um, I know. And it's... Oh. Right. So it's, this is like... It's so frustrating. I am hoping... Like, I'm hoping it comes back. I'm hoping that like by January, like all these games have, have done good business and have been successful. Because like, I didn't think... Mo- like. I didn't think Mafia Three was going to be as cool and like uh, thoughtful as it is. I certainly didn't think Titanfall was going to have like a really experimental and like cool campaign. Uh, I didn't think Battlefield One was going to actually nail some things about World War One. Um, so apparently, Watch Dogs Two also really rad and funny and fun with characters that people actually really like. I'm I'm just sitting here like. None of these franchises interested me. Not on a really sort of gut level. Like Dishonored 2 was the only sort of big budget game I was super looking forward to this year. And and here we are. And earlier in the year, we had Overwatch and Doom, two things I never thought I'd be super into either. And and there they were sort of rocking their shit. It's, it's great and terrible at the same time, <laughs> as you're saying, you know. Yeah, and I mean it's it's a conversation to revisit because I hope it's I hope we're being too doom and gloom right now and, and eventually we're proven wrong. But like the fact that Titanfall's already on crazy sales um, says to me that they're they're trying to goose it a bit. Um, so I don't know, uh, but I really hope that like we see more stuff like this because like this has been a much more interesting end to the year uh, from games perspective than than I was expecting. Um, yeah. Usually this is the time of year that a lot of games come out that I don't really care about that much. And yeah. this time around, it's like, oh, no, there's nowhere near enough time. Like, there just, <laughs> just is not like I need, like, I need to skip Christmas vacation with my family. I just need to, I just need to get caught up on all this. That's, that's what I need to do. Uh, yeah. But it is, it, it isn't like, it is a weirdly exciting uh, release season. And I really hope that we get more like it in the future. Yeah. Same here and it and it's you know i also don't want to sort of forget that there's a lot of little games coming out right now too that are super exciting and amazing and you know potentially game of the year even the ocean throwing that in there even though i we did the advocacy podcast two weeks ago i know it's fine (laughs) uh but yeah there's just too much there are too many good games to play and it's a wonderful problem to have in some ways but i i i echo that sentiment of of like i really want (laughs) i really want the developers of these really awesome rad games that are taking risks and doing new things I, I want them to i want them to be rewarded for that work i want them to to be able to keep doing interesting sort of uh, button pushing work for sure so here's here's to that if if you take a drink this thanksgiving uh <laughs> do it for that so yeah we've been playing a million things and I think it's time for us to go into what our readers have been playing and doing and asking us questions about. So we're going to go into our mailbag. But first, a word from our sponsor. Okay, Danielle, let's practice until we get it right. It's going to be a long Thanksgiving weekend, and we're going to really need to be on our game. 
we're going to get through this without alienating some friends and family. Let's run through some scenarios. Got it. All right. Hey, Danielle, what do you think about this election? I voted for the guy, and I'll be honest, I kind of didn't think Donald was going to win. You think your pals at the ACLU are going to be cool about this Muslim registry? No, Uncle Vito. I don't think they're going to be cool about a blatantly unconstitutional abuse of power against an entire religion, you fascist Okay, let's maybe try a different one. Things, things got a little heated a little fast. Right, right. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, yep, let's, let's try another one. Uh, I'm ready this time. Okay. Hey, kiddo. Could you pass the gravy? The stuffing's a little dry. Oh, your stuffing is a little dry, Aunt Connie. Would you say there's a little drought affecting your Thanksgiving? Because you'd better get used to it once our environmental protections are gutted by the incoming okay. administration. Great. Let me let me just let me just stop you there. Uh, I think and I don't say this often, but I think maybe direct engagement is is the wrong strategy for you. Uh, I, I think I think maybe there's a reason that we prefer deflection. I think it might be the might be the right call in your case. Okay, okay, uh, I, I got it. Um, but uh, you know, what do you want me to deflect to? Well, I mean, you know, we're both from New England. Let's let's just let's speak the language of our people. Just just talk about sports. Like, just get Uncle Vito to talk about the socks, and you'll be fine. Okay, okay, cool. Uh, let's try it from the top. All right. Hey, sweetie. Crazy year, huh? Who'd have thought the Cubs would win the series and then Crooked Hillary would choke away a 3-1 lead? You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, but I guess what I'm really thinking about is my socks. Oh, wow, you're not kidding. Socks have a huge problem with the designated hit hitter position, and, uh... I'm sorry, Uncle Vito. I meant my bombas! You're what now? I was talking about the whole Pappy situation. Check out my Bombas Original at Ankle Length Socks. They've got a soft, reinforced footbed that's perfect for my active lifestyle. And I love the color selection on these babies. I put them on and I just feel faster. And if you hate that seam that always gets under your big toenail, Bombas cracked the problem with their Invisito construction. And the best part is, if you go to getbombas.com weekend, you'll get a discount on your first order, 20% off. Don't forget that Bombas is a buy one, give one operation. So for every pair you buy, a pair is donated to a shelter. Whoa, an Invisito? Maybe America was already great. Your feet will certainly think so if you go to getbombas.com slash weekend to get 20% off your next order. This is great. If I order a week's worth of these babies, I'm not even worried about whether the socks might be able to land Cabrera. My feet will feel like pennant winners either way. Alrighty, we have a full-to-the-brim, bursting, plentiful mailbag today. As usual, they're always plentiful. We, we pretty much never have slim pickings here. It's very nice. So our first letter comes from Samuel. Samuel writes, In Mass Effect, I also played a mostly Paragon Shepard. Made one decision which I think most goody-two-shoes characters wouldn't make. I killed the Rachni Queen, presuming that the most likely outcome of leaving the Rachni Queen alive is that she would just be taken over by the Reapers again. Mass Effect 3 actually proved me right, but in my opinion, which is probably heavily shaded by ju self-justification, the game devs seem to have decided that if you made the Paragon choice back in Mass Effect 1, you shouldn't actually suffer consequences, and thus, once the Rachni Queen is freed, she is magically immune to the Reapers forevermore, oh, forevermore, 
and you get your war score bonus. So I correctly predicted that the Rachni Queen would be taken over and controlled by the Reapers, and yet inexplicably, the Paragon choice back in Mass Effect 1 is still the, quote, correct one. With the exception of Take a Drink, The Witcher, yeah. you, like other games seem to shy away from making the player be put in a position to make decisions where there are no good outcomes, only less worse outcomes. Further, as games, do we too often concern ourselves with getting the 100% best ending and consider it unfair if a game uh, forces us to make a choice that we might find out later was wrong? P.S. You do have some listeners on the other side of the political fence. Well, I mean, before the fence got picked up sometime in the early 2000s and moved about 50 yards behind me. And also, PPS, I think Rob is my literal doppelganger. I'm also a realist who has too much stress and finds it unfortunate when my uh, Europa Universalis 4 Empire needs to do some cultural conversion to make further expansion possible. Samuel. The Imperial Omelette requires some broken eggs. <laughs> um... The, the immediate thing I thought of uh, in this letter uh, was actually sort of the, the, the telltale uh, Walking Dead, the first season, which I guess also take a drink. It's people we know who made the game. Um, but that felt to me like there, there kind of were no great choices. Um, occasionally there were choices that felt like the right choice uh, in that game. I'm talking about the, you know, the first season where it's, it's Clementine and Lee. Uh, and you, you're pretty much tasked with, uh, in a lot of ways, taking care of her and sort of teaching her uh, the ways of the new world now that zombies are here and everything's horrible and terrible. It seemed like most decisions in that game were just gray and a deeper shade of gray. And I, I think that's probably why it was so memorable and it was so good and it was so well written because it was it was sort of like, hey, the real world fucking sucks. Uh, <laughs> here's some bad choices you can make and make them quick. Uh, and I thought that was what was so satisfying about that game. I, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, but I played that game pretty depressed. And I really loved it. <laughs> I was I was really into that whole like, oh, only bad choices. Yeah, good. This is this is an accurate reflection of planet Earth. Uh, and so I enjoyed it even more because of that. So I'm reminded of this uh, this essay that Adam Serwer, uh, who's usually a criminal justice and um, and uh, race writer for. Um, I think he was with BuzzFeed. I think he might have moved to the Atlantic. Uh, sure. But, but yeah. uh, he's also a big nerd. Uh, and uh, back <laughs> yeah. when he was at, uh, I, I want to say, um, maybe Think Progress, um, he wrote an essay about Ned Stark. And this is back when season one of Game of Thrones was coming out. And there were all these memes, right, about how, how dumb Ned Stark was, right? Like, what, what an idiot. How could he be so naive? How could he be so stupid? Uh, and he was sort of talking about the interesting phenomenon where, like, viewers seem to be getting really pissed at, like, the moral, like, honorable hero of the show uh, because he was being moral and honorable, and mm -hmm. it led to him getting killed and everything going straight to shit. And the argument that Serwer made about, like, why Ned Stark makes these decisions, the guy isn't stupid. Um, like he, he doesn't, he doesn't go into the stuff thinking like, boy, I'm going to stick to my principles, even though it, though it costs me. Um, his, his argument for the defense of Ned Stark. And I think it's, it's why characters who make like, why I find these games where it's more about what you can live with, less about the consequences of those decisions, right? Like, what did you do? And less about, like, how it all turned out, 
Like, are you comfortable with the decisions you made? And his argument was, like, Ned knows that uh, the honorable path can lead to disaster, but at the same time, so can the dishonorable one. Like, the book is full of people whose, like, conniving conspiracies blow up in their faces uh, and and get them all killed or or cause some completely unforeseen, you know, disaster. Uh, the, you know, the, Lan- the Lannisters start dropping like flies, too. You know, like no sooner have they neutralized the Starks than like uh, they're starting to get slaughtered right and left. Uh, And so his argument was like, so Ned Stark's a character who knows he lives in this morally chaotic universe. um, And there are ways to be unethical and slimy to get ahead. Um, But in the end... Everyone basically has the same odds of things working out one way or the other. You just you just can't predict. So the thing you can control is your moral culpability uh, yeah. that, that follows from your decisions. Like why did you? What decisions did you make? And for what reasons did you make them? Um, which I always thought was an interesting read on on Ned. But, but ultimately, I also think it's it's a really smart thing that not a lot of games do well, which is divorcing. Um, consequences from choices like that games tend to feel that if you make the good decision you deserve the good outcome and there's not many games that have the conviction to be like well you can still make the best decision possible for the right reasons and it can still go horribly wrong but you still did the right thing and that's that's a complexity that a lot of games save the witcher uh, kind of struggle with, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and it's it's one of those things I think where uh, I really do wish more sort of role playing games would allow for that, especially um, because you know in in a sort of doofy actiony kind of consequence, uh, sorry, doofy actiony sort of game, I'm I'm sort of like. Yeah, I'm sort of on board with the tone to be pretty cheesy in that way, in that sort of like, we're the hero or you're the anti-hero, whatever it is. Like, it, it's sort of my, my I will be pleasantly surprised if things go in, in a, a more subtle direction, but it's not necessarily what I'm expecting. But in a role-playing game, I, I really, or, or at least in a game where my decisions have weight on the story and, and the things that will happen in the world uh, very much depend on sort of making moral decisions, I... I really really hurt for that uh for that uh ability to to say like yeah the world actually fucking sucks and i know that we can model systems in a in a nice pretty way that makes the hero the hero and the bad guy the bad guy but uh that doesn't reflect any kind of reality that anybody's ever lived in so i i specifically always want this in in those kinds of games all right our next email comes from um let me just double check the spelling on that name. Yeah. Let me make a note at that time. Okay, our next email comes from Justin Brown. Hey, R&D. A few weeks ago, Danielle brought up Harvester, and I have to chime in because I think it's one of the more interesting adventure games of its time. 
It was released in the aftermath of the 90s congressional hearings as a response to video games being used to train kids as killers, and naturally the game's ending reveals that you're actually in a VR simulator to train the ultimate serial killer. It's unsubtle in its content, and you're absolutely right that satire needs to walk a line that separates its message from its execution. But... The most interesting thing about Harvester, and something that I think was totally unintentional, is that it highlights the dissonance between the character's goal and the player's intention. You're tasked with a series of progressively terrible tasks, uh, moving from harmless vandalism to arson and murder, while trying to achieve a nebulous goal that ultimately amounts to nothing. Years before Would You Kindly, Harvester asked the player why the hero of video games is such a destructive force for no gain. How any adventure games can you think of where you don't steal trick, or violently force your way to the end. It's undeniably a bad game, but one worth discussing for its content, both positive and negative. My question is, have you ever been faced with media you know is trashy or problematic, <laughs> but still with creative merit? P.S. If you haven't seen Arrival, you should do so now. It's a wonderfully positive science fiction film about language and communication, and at one point mentions the Worfian Hypothesis. I saw it the day after the election results, and it was a much-needed boost as a positive story about the best of humanity in our darkest hour. Oh, boy. Um, okay. So, Danielle, have you ever liked something that was problematic <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and trashy? <laughs> you, you all know how much I love trash. I love trash so much. I am just like a trash queen, and I love my trash. I mean, we've talked about, like, Lost Girl, which I think is trash but has redeeming value to it. Like, a lot of redeeming value. I, I think it's actually pretty pretty awesome. It's just it's also totally fucking trash, and I love it. Um, but let's go, let's go even deeper on this because I think Harvester is like a uh, – God – I, I've seen I've ne I've since seen further into the game than we played on our stream, um, and it and it it does get really really bad. And I and I think it was made. I mean, I I do actually think intentions uh, play play out uh, in a lot of ways, and I do not think it was. Uh, I know it was made supposedly as a satire, but you know, as I said, like if you can't tell it's satire, you did a bad fucking job. You failed uh, because you're just sort of extolling a worldview that sucks and is terrible and uh, people will take that as a flag and raise it, kind of. Um, and, it, and it goes to some really dark and terrible, terrible places, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there is, this is interesting. And, and the reason we didn't just stop streaming it was because, yeah, it is sort of a cultural artifact too. It's, it's a product of a time in a place and that's interesting and it's worth looking at these things uh not only just to, to pat ourselves on the back for how far we've come i mean i don't think we should do that uh but to also like understand like like this was this was something that was made and it came out of a context it came out of somebody's head it came out of you know people's hard work it's people approved this people said this was okay what sort of factors go into that and let's uh, let's get very very real here I like things and I have liked things in my life that I think are actually like damaging and bad. Not just problematic, not just trashy, but like fucked up. Like when I was younger, you know, even even as like a teenager, like I used to I used to really love a lot of Eminem albums. Like and I and I still kind of do. I'm not going to lie. Like I still think a lot of sort of early Eminem some of his early albums were like amazing and incredible and musically interesting and they're 
creating a persona of a fucking misogynist rapist who hates gay people. <laughs> like those, those are not the things that I think are good in this world. And that speaks to a lot of things that are horrible in this world. But I still think the music is amazing, right? Like I'm capable of separating those things. Um, <laughs> does that mean I'm going to like go to an Eminem concert and like, you know, like buy the t-shirts and shit or whatever? Like, no, probably not. Cause, cause I, I can't, on that level, you're you're actively sort of supporting something that maybe you think uh, has some serious fucking issues and possibly even does some 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 bad in the world, I guess. Um, and it, and I know it's more complicated than that because I know, uh, you know, Eminem, Marshall Mathers himself has said things and apologized for things, and there's a whole history of his feelings on stuff, and there was the whole fucking thing he did as sort of a joke in that god-awful movie that almost got us nuked by North Korea last year, two years ago, whatever it was, the conversation, the interview, whatever it was called, where he, there's like a satirical scene where he comes out as a gay dude. And yes, I know, it's more complicated than that, but like to simplify this entire argument, to simplify the entire point I'm trying to make, um, yes, I'm certainly- <laughs> To boil it down, you really <laughs> dig Eminem, but maybe you shouldn't, but you still do because the music's really good. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. That was good. Yes. Yes, uh, and I think everybody has those things, and I, and I think it's healthy to like be honest with yourself oh. about those things and not rationalize shit and just be like, look, sometimes sometimes this stuff is, yes. is bad and shitty, and you still fucking like it, and like be honest about it. You know, don't be like, well, no, it's okay because of this. It's like, no, maybe it's not. <laughs> it's okay that it's not. You yeah. have to be. You have to be a critical consumer of media because yes. otherwise, you end up propagandizing yourself. Like, how many people love Philadelphia Story? Um, yeah. You know, it's got Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn and, and Jimmy Stewart. Okay, great. Yeah. So there's a lot of really charismatic people playing out one of the, like, shittiest, like, scripts. Um, <laughs> one of the most, like, relentlessly misogynistic movies. Um, like, you know, not ever made because that's because a lot of really misogynistic movies. Yeah, there's a, but, a bar for that. But yeah. it is unbelievable <laughs> in its stealth misogyny. And the way, like, having an attractive rapper, rapper put on it, uh, where, oh, it's, it's Cary Grant, it's Jimmy Stewart, how could they be bad? Well, because they're actors playing bad people. Like, the movie is literally, like, two hours of a woman whose crime is to stop taking shit from the abusive men in her life. Yep. Being, uh, basically being, like, negged. For two hours. Like, like every scene in that movie is Catherine Hepburn's character uh, either being, like, grossly objectified or being told what's wrong with her. Yeah. Uh, and it is still, it is still, in some ways, um, a decently enjoyable movie. Because it's got really, <laughs> it's got really good actors in it. Uh, and there's some, there's some beautiful shots in it. Uh, I find it harder and harder to watch these days. But it is, it is beautiful poison. Uh, in some yes. ways, but I can still I can still watch it and I can still appreciate the craft. Um, I think for me, I love I love 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 good romantic comedies. Sure. At this point in my life, <laughs> I am realizing that the vast majority of them teach absolutely toxic values about relationships. Yeah. Um, like perfect example. I think Say Anything is a genuinely sweet and brilliant movie. Yeah. Great film. And Lloyd Dobler is 
a really sweet character. And he's played by John Cusack and he's made of charisma and uh, it's it's really romantic and sweet. He's also really creepy though. Yeah. Like he, like that's the that's the thing, right? Like once you realize, like it's sort of like Rudy, you know, where it's like, kid, just yeah. do, like kid, you're not cut out to be a football player. Maybe maybe fucking stop. Like <laughs> like yeah, it's awesome. Like he's standing outside her house with a fucking boombox playing their song and everything. That's also stalking. Like the movie's yeah. like glorifying like it's it's glorifying stalking. And the thing that makes it okay is ultimately. They are, you know, that in the end they are in love and they get together and it's all fine. Um, but the problem is, like, people see the stuff and they're like, part of the purpose of lo- romantic, yeah. yeah, and like art to an extent is does present itself as a mirror of life or or how we wish life was, which also means a sort of teaching lessons. And a lot of the lessons that you draw from movies like that are actually really profoundly creepy. And I just had to sort of accept that, like, I'd love say anything. I think that a real-life Lloyd Dobler would be a really creepy uh, person to to have have in your life. Uh, yeah. And you should not aspire to be him. Yeah. Uh, although, the thing I, I will say is also most people aren't Lloyd, right? Like, that's a character where he is, like, shown yeah. aggressively sweet uh, throughout the movie. Like, at no point do you ever... Like, the reason it's not creepy is because, like, every turn, he shows himself to be a stand-up, like, thoughtful person. Uh, but... All that behavior is extremely bad, uh, and and yeah, you just have to have to make your peace with it. Um, and then, of course, there's Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> which I yeah. love. Quentin Tarantino movies, uh, pretty much all of them, and all of them almost invariably have moments that leave me saying, like, "Huh, yeah. wonder what that was. What's going on there?" Yeah. Yep. I mean, I feel like there's. There's always this thing where it's like, oh, in polite company, we don't talk about the, you know, like like our dark secrets, like the dark media that we enjoyed, and 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 we don't talk about it because it's it's a problem, and it's, I don't know, I I think it's, <laughs> I think it's important just, just be honest with yourself, be like, you know what, I like this shit, but at least I can say, well, there's some real shit here. Yeah. I should not internalize that. I'm a, you know, and we could talk for hours about this. I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. I, I'm pretty sure that guy had some fucking issues with women. Oh, like, he, yeah. Like, <laughs> real issues. Um, and, and what a brilliant and talented filmmaker. Like, the dude was able to, to do such incredibly amazing creative work. Like, he was able to edit a movie basically in his head as he was shooting it. Like, yeah. that's, it's, abs- it's unheard of. It's incredible. He was an well, actual creative genius. Totally hated women, at least on some uh, level, you know? No, no, hang on. Like, Hitchcock's one of those really, really tricky characters, though, because, like, that's entirely true. Then why are so many of his movies also really, like, successful as, uh, like, feminist works as well? Well... <sighs> Because because the like younger or purer girl character in the movie might might do okay. She might be all right. You know, she might be the the pure one. She might be the good one. And you know, there are examples where he sympathizes with victims and so on and so forth. But like the entire point of Marnie is like this girl is traumatized because her mother is a prostitute. So she needs hot James Bond to rape her into normalcy. Like, that's the that's the plot of Marnie. Like, 
that's yeah yeah mm. yeah and then <laughs> both has like graphic <laughs> like, rape scenes um yeah but but it's and, also like, he's the hero about, the hero is is the ah oh, it's just wait are you, no no the hero wait what no ro- the hero of, of Marnie. Ro- okay okay the hero of Marnie. <laughs> okay Marnie. yeah i'm sorry i just can't get over like yeah i know no. it was a different time i understand it's just like holy fuck <laughs> you know like, yeah but the thing I will also say is, like, Shadow of a Doubt is all about yes. men's pathological, like, hatred of women and the fact that nobody listens to women, uh, particularly yes. young women. Like, the entire movie, the thing that's the ultimate source of horror is that the girl sees it almost from the first as to what yes. these people let into their lives. That Joseph Cotton is just a malevolent creep. Um and everyone just sort of laughs it off because they're trained not to see, they're they're trained not to see, uh, like evil behind a mask of like masculine respectability, and a woman who expresses like discomfort, um, is not taken seriously intellectually and is told she's being hysterical, uh, which is another thread that runs through a lot of those movies. Yeah. So I think Hitchcock, Hitchcock definitely had issues. Like the, his inter- his relationships with a lot of his leading women too were also like super fucked up. Pretty fucked up. Yeah. But Hitchcock is just there, there's 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 a lot of problematic stuff in that in that in that catalog. But I I I, I will I don't want to like throw him onto the trash person uh, heap uh, just just yet because I think there's I, I think his movies there's just too much going on in them. Uh, to, to reach any kind of like facile conclusion about like sure. the subtext. Sure. I, I, I think that's more than fair. I, I, I would, I would, um, yeah, we, we can put him on his own planet where he, he did some really fucked up and bad stuff. Uh, and he did some good stuff and holy shit feelings. Yep. I think that's, yep. That's good. <laughs> All right. Our next letter is a, is a shorter letter, uh, from Joseph. Joseph writes, Quick response to mentions of both interesting NPCs and Stalker. Something I found really helped Stalker's mood and realism was that every Stalker, bandit, soldier, whatever, had a name, even zombies. This gave them much more of a presence than Skyrim's utterly interchangeable bandits, all called Bandit, or even Dishonored's various guards who all love whiskey and cigars. No question this time, though. That's, that's, yeah. I think that's actually cool. That that shows a level of care at the very least of of saying like every person, every presence in this game is a named presence. It is not just rando number seven. Um, and that's actually something that Pokemon does too. Even all the sort of random uh, trainers that you that you fight with, uh, a lot of times they'll have like a, a a sort of a first name. You know, the first name is like preschooler this or backpacker this or cool person this whatever. And then they all have a name, even if even if they're not terribly memorable there's there's something to that there's something to like giving a character a name that that imparts some sort of meaning and value on them yeah i I think that uh that that can definitely be a device that that gives a sense of there being it's one more thing that sort of adds the illusion of there being a world around you um as opposed to yeah the whole the whole designer thing where like when you hear the same like can dialogue like the people making the same plans like 20 times it's like <laughs> yeah. yep that's like this is the illusion of life whereas a bunch of like individually named people going about like following their own agendas feels very lively 
And the next letter is super long, Rob. I don't oh, know yeah, if you want to break it into two, maybe? I can... No, I got the it. first part or the second part? You got it? Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave this one in your capable hands. Though. All right. At least the reading portion. <laughs> oh, this is kind of long. All right. Uh, our next email comes from Kevin Smith. Uh, Kevin writes, Hey, DNR. I can only assume you received a deluge of email after your election show. So I'm going to get to right to the point and save the generalities for later. There is a very promising outcome from the 2016 election, and that is Maine's approval of ranked, voting, ranked choice voting statewide. Many people don't realize that a better voting system is possible, and this election is a really good demonstration of the possible benefits. <laughs> Briefly, under ranked choice voting, also, in, also called instant runoff voting, a voter ranks the available candidates in order of preference 1, 2, 3, 4. Then several mini-elections are run by a computer. In a mini-election, a single vote is cast by each voter for their candidate, number one. If a candidate receives a majority of the votes, the election is decided. If not, the candidate with the least votes is eliminated, and another mini-election is run between the remaining candidates. All voters still vote for their number one, except for those who chose the, estimated, the eliminated candidate as number one, who instead now cast their vote for the number two. This continues until one candidate has a majority. The system has several positive effects in general. It eliminates the spoiler effect by allowing voters to vote third party without dividing the vote with a similar candidate of a major party. Hmm. It also reduces the incentive to negatively campaign because voters dislike negative campaigning, and it is important to still be number two or number three if you are not someone's first choice. Finally, it gives voters, voters more candidate choices rather than trying to distill complex points of view into a binary choice where neither candidate really represents anyone. Anyway, I'm working hard to raise awareness of this system as I truly believe that it is better and that were it in place in 2016, Trump would not have won. The great thing about this is that elections are run by the states, so this does not have to be a national debate. Maine passed it through a ballot initiative put forward by citizens, and many other states allow the same direct democracy process. If this were to sweep through the states like marijuana has... It would be a great boon to democracy. Okay, now to the promised generalities. I so look forward to hearing you guys talk about the election. I always love your insightful and frank discussions of things, and hearing your thoughts about the election was wonderful in helping to process it. Uh, Rob, I have had the exact same feeling that maybe it's best this is happening blatantly instead of continuing to fester under the surface, more or less ignored for several more years. I've not been able to put it into words, and I was glad to hear you say it as well. It is a hard opinion to put forward as no one is glad of the immediate outcome, but I think it is a good thing to say. Danielle, I love your point that we can no longer deny that everything is political and that you are, that you are going to do what you can in order to make things better. Not everyone needs to run for office to make a difference. Using one's particular posts and skills to promote love, fairness, and acceptance is a great way for everyone to contribute to making things better. With all the opinions flying around, I'm so glad to hear the level-headed thinking of two very smart people. I'm not sure you're still talking about us. Uh, being, a game, game, being a game show, I imagine there was a temptation to ignore it completely and not make Idle Weekend political. I am so glad you didn't. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you for uh, uh, the very kind words. And also that, that is fantastic to hear uh, about uh, Maine electing that, that new system. Um, we were, I, I think both of us were like a little wary about putting that sort of product out there and i still you know when i was editing it i was like thinking about cutting and i was kind of like oh, oh I, I like i messaged you that morning and was like do we yeah. really want to do this like yeah because i because i became aware at the end like and i started to mention this on the forum on the forum thread 
usually Danielle and I have a pre-show ritual, uh, which is we sort of like we sort of bleed the poison. We draw out the poison of the week. Um, (laughs) And once it's all out there and we've taken it out and looked at it, uh, we put it away and then we go and do the show. And it's it's uh, it's a really fun process. Uh, It really helps helps me with a lot of stuff. But this week uh, we were sort of under the gun, and it was the elephant in the room. We just, I feel like we ended up having our pre-show chat on the air, um, and I was really uncertain that that was the thing we wanted to do. In part because I think people are just so sick of thinking about it and hearing it. Um, but I, I, I gotta say, I'm, I am really pleased that, um, by and large, it seemed like people were pretty accepting of it, uh, and I guess we didn't make asses of ourselves. That that's always uh. That's always a plus, especially with me when I will, I say things off the cuff all the time. And then later I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Serious foot and mouth syndrome often, frequently, all the time in my life. So yeah, I'm, I'm really, really pleased with the response. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just happy that it, like, I, when I was editing and I, and I was thinking about cutting stuff out and then I, I just sort of went with my gut that was like, no, you know what? We were, we were fucking honest and we were just put it out there and that's what it is. And then we talked about fun things and like, whatever, that was the arc of the episode, you know? So yeah. thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, thank I do you. find it hilarious. The only person that we've had to ban in the, in the forum comments <laughs> about it, uh, for, for being kind of an asshole, uh, was somebody who was also like almost got banned, uh, because they were, Pissed off about Rowan Kaiser Stellaris review earlier this year. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, so no, it was it was totally one of those situations where it was like, wait, I know this guy. Where do I know him from? And I was like, oh god, no, it's the guy who's the asshole about four X's. Um, it was further evidence, like for for my secret suspicion, for my for my suspicion that secretly, mm-hmm. it's the same group of assholes ruining the world. The, 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 yep. There are not as many assholes as you think. It's the same assholes popping up in setting after setting, um, behave like behaving the exact same way, be it video games or politics or comic books or whatever. It's the same dudes, and even if it feels like their numbers are overwhelming, it's like it's it's a handful of jerks. No, they're just louder. Yeah, yeah. that's what it is. The vocal minority being. You know, yeah, very, it's, it's the, very vocal. It's, it's the it's the Venn diagram. It's the ass crack of the Venn diagram of uh, <laughs> interests and, and political opinions. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that was that's something that I thought was kind of funny. Uh, as for um, uh, rank choice voting, that is a really really cool system, um, and I guess I wonder like direct direct ballot initiatives. Uh, while I have ambivalent feelings about them living in california <laughs> um good god our, our voters guide was insane it, it's amazing it's yeah. it's unreal I, I miss it a little bit i voting for the first time in in new york after voting in california i was like this is it you know there was there was well, one piece of paper that i looked at it had a back and a front and i was done and i was like this this usually takes like half an hour like what the hell what's, <laughs> what scares me about california in some ways is just like Direct democracy opens the door to such massive misinformation campaigns. Uh, like, for the entire month, like, like even setting aside the, the fake news stuff, like, for the entire month leading up to uh, the election, it was just, like, entire commercial breaks would be loaded with, like, this, uh, this, what was it, like, there, there was a, um, 
drug purchasing bill, like allowing like uh, I want to say allowing like insurance agencies to uh, like locking them into paying the same as like Medicare uh, for uh, or as the VA uh, for for medications. And the like the, the major campaign was like, don't screw over our veterans by passing this proposition, which wasn't really what it was about. But it was this whole like you become really aware that like in direct democracy situations, the effort is not to have the debate with the public. The effort is to genuinely mislead. Yeah. Um, and that is a very scary thing yeah, when it's, it's the entire argument is we are going to muddy the issue until people think they are voting for one thing and they're actually voting on voting for another. Uh, that's a total, that's a total mess. This would be an interesting one to put through. Um, I wonder, do you think the parties would support it or try to get, or try to block it? I wonder if one party would support it and one would block it, (laughs) actually, to be honest. Uh, I wonder if the Democrats would be mildly in favor, obviously, with some factions against it, and then the Republicans would be absolutely not. No, thank you. Um, Because I think... I don't know. That's just just pulling that out of my ass completely. uh, That would be my, like, immediate gut reaction to how the parties would feel about that. That's true. I mean, well, I mean, one party's like legislative majority does depend on distorting, dis- <laughs> distorting votes. Like that's yep. that's that's it. Like that's that's the strategy is like get forty nine percent of the vote and take fifty eight percent of the representation. Yeah. Um. So yeah, a system like this might not work in their favor, but to an extent, I think both parties tend to be pretty hostile to the idea of like anything that sort of makes third parties viable, and this might. Not super happy about it, yeah. No, uh, because then you end up having to, then you end up having to fight on on flanks you didn't want to fight on. You know, what I mean, I, I think go, like going back to some of our discussion, sometimes it feels like Democrats love punching left because they know because ultimately the 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 attitude is, what are you going to do about it? Well, this year we saw mm-hmm. <laughs> this year. This yeah, year we, we saw the, the the fruits of that attitude. Yeah. Uh, the what people are going to do about it is stay home. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of happiness among Democrats to go to the right for general elections. They're they're comfortable doing that, and I'm not sure they'd be super thrilled to open the door to like the Sanders wing of the party uh, starting yeah. to actually get like a legislative presence. Yeah, I think you're right about that, for sure. I, I guess I was just thinking in the sort of plurality of dem- Democratic voters uh, versus the sort of uh, well-oiled machine that is the GOP. Yeah, I mean, it's it's way better. It it, it opens the door to way more voices. Because um, then, yeah, then there isn't this pressure to, like, well, this person shouldn't run because it'll screw over, uh, screw us over in the election. But... Uh, yeah, it's, I'm curious, have many countries adopted it? Uh, I guess that's my follow-up question. Um, and if, if, if you're in, if you're in a region that's adopted it, uh, let us know how it's gone and whether it's opened up the political process at all or, uh, caused local parties to sort of shift positions. Uh, I think it's a really interesting system and, uh, definitely we are ripe for some alternatives. Yeah, we could, we could sure use a little, a little positive change. Change in the positive side would be, would be rad. Well, I've got some positive change for you, Danielle. Oh, yeah? 
it's the weekend, and yeah. I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy it. Uh, so what are you working on this weekend? What are you into? What is your jam? So, I mean, this weekend I am doing a Friendsgiving, and it's going to be amazing, and I'm going to play a lot of games, uh, including the games I talked about earlier. But there's one game, Rob, that I played today that uh, I just want everybody to play it. It's free. You just play it. Uh, you just download it. It's it's a it's part of the good bundle that that has you know money going to the ACLU and Planned Parenthood and all that, and you get 150 games, and it's great. And I'm advocating for that because I think it's actually a great thing. But this specific game, you can you can just grab by yourself uh, without any of that stuff. It came out like a month ago, and it is called Colored Candles. And I'm gonna just I'm gonna just give you a little, a little piece here of this. Uh, of the uh, the marketing copy or whatever on the itch.io page colored candles is a psychedelic point and trip experience with over 15 unique screens of content and colors Mm -hmm. using a traditional point and click interface device such as a mouse players navigate through various dimensions in search of the favored colored candles Mm -hmm. the journey forward is blocked by many tests and gatekeepers all bolstered by the powerful psychic master to complete your quest, you must look beyond sounds and sights of the game and journey deep within yourself. Mm-hmm. May you reach the next level. Rob, this game, this game, holy fucking shit. It is just like, it just looks like, did you play Game of the Year 420 Blaze It by any chance? The montage <laughs> game, the montage shooter game? I can't say that I did. Okay, well... Uh, Thumbs listeners will know about 420 Game of the Year, 420 Blaze It, (laughs) which was made by the same person who made uh, Crossy Road. It was like two weeks before Crossy Road came out. This this like game jam, ridiculous thing where you would shoot, you know, it was like a crappy shooter uh, made of, you know, sort of every brick in the game was Doritos and Mountain Dew and you would shoot things and then like montage meme shit would just happen on the screen. It would overlay and overlay and overlay. This is like that, but for drugs and not like meme culture. This is layers and layers and layers of full motion video and just pictures of things that you can click on of things like, you know, just like marijuana plants and weird puppets and weird puppets dancing and just colors and weird gradients and all this kind of stuff happening. Um... And you just click, and there's there's puzzles. You know, I, I started playing this on stream today, and I was just like, okay, we're going to look at a goofy thing for a minute, and we're going to laugh at the thing and be like, I played it for like half an hour, because there's actually like puzzles and secrets and all sorts of weird things you can interact with in this world. So it's not just the veneer of trippiness. There's, there's a game in there. And my it's not God. off-puttingly hippie, druggy, like because the whole. Like, I mean, it's a hundred percent that, but okay, it's cause, very because it sort of sounds like the game version of your friends who's like super into fish. Oh, it it is, but it's also like your friend knows that he's super into. Like he, he, your friend knows that you think it's pretty funny that he's super into fish, and he laughs about okay. it. Okay, like that's what this game is. It's so tongue in cheek, um, like. Definitely, definitely tongue in cheek. Uh, way more so than Doctor Strange was for sure about its own hippie shit. So, uh, like, yeah, I just, I just think everybody should just play this goofy, weird thing. And it's part of this bundle. It's part of the bundle. When does the bundle run separately. through? Like, when people listen to this episode, is it still going to be live? We can it pause to look be. at it. Yeah, up, but 
Uh, it should be. It's it's on for the next six days. So yeah, okay. it should be. Um, but yeah, honestly, like I'm, I'm even gonna put it in the show notes. Like a good bundle is seriously worth your time. Uh, two dollars and up, you get like most of the games, and it's twenty dollars and up, you get all hundred and fifty one. And those are like those include like the bigger games and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of stuff either way. Uh, and I just like if you get the bundle or even if not, colored candles is a thing you should experience in some way in your life. It is. It's a beautiful, beautiful, just little trip. So try it. <laughs> uh, so this week I am into, um, all right, so it's sort of a dual recommendation because I think okay. this is a great story in both iterations and everyone should consume both versions. Um, but my girlfriend is visiting and we are watching uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Okay. Uh, which is on Netflix. And it is an adaptation of the book by the same name uh, by Susanna Clark. And if you're not familiar with this book, uh, we'll start with the book because the book is a masterpiece. Like it is one of my favorite novels from like the last, God, I want to say like 10, 15 years. Um, Basically, it's Jane Austen does fantasy is kind of how it is. Like it is, it is a comedy of manners uh, to an extent. Uh, set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, but really it's about like it's about like Regency England and an alternate history where magic exists. And this is the weird thing; it 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 it's sort of it, it is historically based, except its England has an entirely different like mythological backstory. Like in the in the distant past, uh, England is ruled by a magical ruler called the Raven King. And in these in the modern times of the of the book, um, magic begins making a return under these two gentleman magicians, uh, Mr. Norrell and Jonathan Strange. And Mr. Norrell is uh, your bookish scholar who just wants magic to be respectable. Uh, he wants very proper English magic, uh, very repressed, very proto-Victorian magic. Uh, and Jonathan Strange is very much like just a just a, a wizard. Basically, like he get, he gets into it, he's got a knack for it. He's sort of the Mozart to uh, to Norrell Salieri, and it's about their rivalry, but it's also about sort of the the chain reactions they set in motion uh, mm-hmm. as they begin uh, basically playing around in, in deep pools that they do not understand. Uh, and what's really cool is that the book starts out just as as a comedy of manners about with magic, and it's it's all written. In sort of that 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 tone, that's the the the, the style of the period, um, and then slowly but surely, the stakes become very real. Like for the first for the first third of the book, I'd say like it doesn't feel like it's totally like it feels just charming and light and airy, and then without ever really becoming like dark and gritty, um, the stakes become very very high indeed, um, and the type of magic that is being done and the way it weaves together with the alternate history of England presented in this book, um, is, is really incredible. And the version on Netflix is the BBC adaptation. Hmm. And I thought like that it would be kind of unadaptable. Uh, but I'm proven pretty, pretty absolutely wrong. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really, really good adaptation. The magic feels like truly magical. It gets at things that it gets at the horror, uh, of, of Mm -hmm. some of the stuff in the novel, uh, that maybe the prose didn't fully embrace. Um, 
and it's just it's it really brings to life a lot of these characters, getting both the humor and uh, sort of the pathos of of the world. So, oh, it is. Speaking, you're speaking my language right now, Rob. Yeah, and like, yeah. I don't think it's one of those things like read the book first. Uh, just like the series is fine. The book will still be there, um, <laughs> but like, really, like enjoy both versions. Because uh, I think is it's it just all the same thing. Yeah, both, jo- both Jonathan okay, Strange cool. and Mr. Norrell. Perfect. Uh, and it is. I think. I think they're basically. I think. I think the book's basically flawless. Like I absolutely love it. It's. It's one of my favorite. Uh, favorite pieces of fantasy uh, ever made. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm. Now I'm even more angry with you because you keep <coughs> adding things uh, to <laughs> that I need to read as well as need to play and watch, but. Not not actually angry. I'm thankful. I am. It's Thanksgiving. That is appropriate. Weekend. I'm thankful for the wonderful things that you you cause me to spend my time doing. Rob, thank you. <laughs> like podcast editing. Like podcast editing. That too. I'm very thankful for that. Um, on that very happy note, I think it's time for us to go out and enjoy our holiday weekends. Rob, as always, I, I want to thank you. You know, as we're doing this, thank you. For, for being here, doing all the cool things. Uh, this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. And you can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And folks, we thank you so much for having you uh, in your ears. If you are enjoying the show and you have a moment, please do take that moment and rate us on iTunes, write us a little review and tell your friends, tell your, you know, your roommates. Thanksgiving table talk. There's never been a better time. There's never been a better time. You, you know, if you're at the Thanksgiving table, you've got relatives, they're getting rowdy. Tell them about our show. They'll love it. I, you know, they will. Just put it um, on. Yes. Don't even give them an option. <laughs> yeah. Just put it on. You don't need to talk politics. Let us do it for you. Just put on the old show and you're going to do great. You're going to have some great sort of background holiday conversation just for you and your friends and your frenemies and your family and everybody else who's in your house eating that day. And by Uh, Christmas, everyone will be wearing much nicer socks. Exactly. They'll be wearing the best socks, those Bombas socks. You know, they're good. You know you love them. Thank you so much, friends. Uh, And please do spread the word. It helps us so much. And we appreciate it. It means the world to us. And we're very thankful for you, dear listeners, uh, for listening to us and our nonsense. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. (laughs) 